Hi, I'm Natalika Sika, and this is 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52 Women, the podcast. Isabel, Anna, Beth, and Maggie are a group of women who want it all, and they're doing their darndest to get it all. They are in charge of their bodies, their careers, their desires, and they're also figuring out that whole balancing motherhood and work thing. But it's not as smooth and easy as you think. Where motherhood is involved, men have to appear somewhere in the picture, at least a little. The novel, The End of Men, explores all these issues and more, and author Karen Rinaldi joins me now. Karen, welcome. Thank you, Madalika. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining me. So, you know, I've got to just say right off the bat, uh, <laughs> after reading your book, I got to thinking about seahorses, um, and you could bear with me here for a minute. Um, I saw this amazing video, and uh, male seahorses carry and give birth to the babies. Um, and I can't help but wonder sometimes if our lives as women wouldn't be less complicated if we weren't the ones giving birth to babies. <laughs> oh, it's funny. I don't know if you saw this in my picture, but I have a seahorse tattoo on my right forearm, <laughs> and I wear a seahorse necklace. So, wow. <laughs> that is so on target. It's uncanny. Um, would it be easier? I, I think the I think everything would be different. I think um, I think the world would be a different place. Absolutely. Um, but it I can't even imagine what that would be like. I actually have two tattoos or several, but but one is also an octopus, and I have huh. an octopus because they are unlikely, very unlikely, um, good mothers. They're cephalopods, so they're odd creatures but they will take care of their children to the death if, if necessary. And you wouldn't think that of a, of a sea creature like an octopus. So I, I, wear, I wear just both that, that as a symbol of motherhood and I wear the seahorse um, actually, um, as I, I say, because my son and I share one as a gender bending sea creature and he is a gender bending sea creature. Huh. And uh, I also love the fact that they carry uh, the the eggs or the children uh, yes. or the, the offspring and so absolutely I sit in the middle of all of these bafflements really about motherhood and fatherhood and 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 the politics of it a lot of it is about the politics exactly of it. and I think uh, you yeah. know what's interesting to me about the women in your uh, book is that you know this group of four female friends. That the motherhood part is a big part of what, yes. what they're struggling with. Um, and I think that, you know, they're clearly, they're younger than uh, I am, I think. And, you know, one, one sort of grew up thinking it would get better for women and the choices that they wanted to make. And I don't really get that sense, um, particularly. Uh, is that sort of what you were thinking about? Do you mean in the book or in real well, life? Well, the book represents to me yes. what, something that hasn't changed as much as I hope it would have in real life. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yes. No, it's true. I wrote the book actually 15 years ago. Um, and when I wrote it uh, then, I was in the throes of having children and building my career at the same time. And I was having a hell of a time doing it. I was doing it uh, and I was owning it and I was actually loving every second of it because it's incredibly, uh, it was incredibly empowering and I felt very powerful. At the same time, I felt like, wait a minute, <laughs> this is not supposed to be so hard because we're supposed to have structures in place that's, that, that will support us and yet that didn't really exist. More importantly then though, 
what I was frustrated by is that I felt like women weren't represented fairly in the media, not in fiction, not in TV, not in film, just not in the world. Women were either careerists or they were, they were either, you know, careerists or good mothers. It was very hard to, to see people, repre women represented as someone who was actually doing both in spite of the lack of support. And that's what spurred writing this book, actually. I started writing it just as a exploration of saying, well, what happens if you create these women who are just going to say, the hell with it, I'm going to do it on my own, my way, anyway. Men aren't so much incidental is the fact is we get support, but the support that we get is still bound by certain expectations and structures that are so deeply embedded in who we are that I don't even know I don't know how they get changed. Now, what's interesting is I wrote it 15 years ago. I really believe in my soul watching, listening to young women read this book. Like, and, and so now I'm, I'm in my mid fifties and the women who are coming to the book, it seems with open arms are women in their twenties and thirties. Huh. And I think they start to see at least the change with their partners, that their partners may be more willing. Now we, we listen, I live in New York city in a, in a pretty, uh, you know, open-minded world of publishing and media. So, but still you sort of see things percolating up, but I wish, I want to say, I wish things have changed. Um, and I think they have, I think it's glacial. Right. I think the changes are glacial. They right. started, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you know, in 1848 or whatever, you know, first wave, you know, second wave happens 130 years later. Here we are in the third wave. We're still having the same conversations. For yeah. The same part. And I think what's interesting to me, um, is that the sort of change we are seeking has to happen on multiple fronts. So, exactly. you know, what I, when I think about these four uh, women in the book, they are, you know, for an enlightened group of successful and let's say privileged women, they, they are still having to navigate multiple challenges, the challenges of a workplace that's hostile to motherhood or the decision to be a sol solo mother, which is often looked upon um, not very open-mindedly in society, uh, you know, a woman who doesn't want to have the father in her life, or even the desire to be at home with your husband and children. You know, these are things all these women go through and it's tough for them. Um, and you'd think that because of their status and privilege and their race, uh, an economic livelihood, they'd have a better start, but it's hard for them. Exactly. So you think about how hard it is for everyone who isn't, who doesn't have all of those privileges in place. And I think part of it is the conflict. I mean, I think you can't ignore the conflict that comes from within. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very real thing. And I'm not, I wouldn't blame it on that. So there's no blame here, but the conflict within, which, you know, happens. And I speak really, the, the book is a, com those characters are composites of many of the women that I know and know very well is that we want to be with our children and raise our children. We also want careers. We want our own agency hundred percent, but we want partners and we want to share our lives. We want to, you know, um, um, have our own individual lives outside of both of those things, but there just isn't any time. And so you're, you're constantly having to make choices. Um, along the way. And my, my, the, the message of the book, and I, I hope this came through, but what I wanted to say is it's possible. It is possible to have these things. Again, when you have, when you have a lot of the things that you need lined up, it is possible to have 
a lot of what you want, but you can't have everything. And then what is everything anyway? Like who, who has everything? Like, I don't even know what that means. Like, listen, right. you don't get to necessarily go to the gym every day and go to your yoga instructor, get your nails done, go to the spa. And, you know, you can't, the career, motherhood, partnership, you know, you, you, something has to give. And I think that the, the women in the book are meant to sort of exhibit the great honor, not honor, the great um, privilege of choice. And even within that choice, struggle, because knowing what you want, knowing yourself and knowing what you want is a very hard thing to know. That's hard for anyone. And now that the, the structures are somewhat broken down, but not really, right? They're broken down in right. our minds, but they're not broken down culturally. So you're not, it's not that you're like seeing the nods from everyone. I mean, you know, people used to ask me all the time, well, are you going to go back to work after you have kids? And I would look at them and say, am I going to go back to work? I, I have no choice. Well, I precisely. To back to work. I, precisely. You know, I, I, I support my family. Like why? Of course I'm going back to work. And then they, and then I would get people coming to me and, and then judging that. And then, you know, people judge and it's other women, it's women and men. I mean, it's not like it's a gender Thing. I think it's I think it's society that sort of judges it. So you're left alone with your friends and girlfriends support it and stuff, and then you can find like-minded people. But the cues from the culture are that you have to choose, and the cues are that if you're going to be a powerful woman, then you're a bitch, and if you're a uh, you know if you're going to be uh, a, a a mother who also works a very demanding job, you're an absent mother. And I said that doesn't necessarily true. Mm. You have to be present and true to whatever you're doing. Right, at that moment. and precisely, you know, I mean, for all mothers who work at whether blue collar, white collar, work for themselves, you know, they mm -hmm. have to work and they want to be present for their mothers. You know, there is a sort of judgment around uh women who work outside the home um that yes. there isn't for others um you know i thought that was interesting to sort of examine those issues with this group of women you know you have one of the one of the women who really thinks a lot about i want to stay home with my family and my children and i can't stand leaving the house um and you know that's the kind of thing that some people might judge her for um. totally and i think she judges herself for it and then you know what happens in the book of course is she she you know she she works with a very sympathetic uh, person who is her her friend and her her boss and of of, of red hot mama of the company yeah and then she she stays at home and she's miserable yeah about staying at home and then she thinks am i a bad am i am i doing everything wrong i, I can't be fully present in my job and i can't be fully present at home and she has to come I think she has to come to terms with the conflict. And I think a lot of, and, and a lot of mothers have to do that. You come to terms with the conflict, whatever that conflict is. I love to leave and go to work. I feel guilty. I don't want to leave and go to work. I am heartbroken. I, you know, I, I feel like I'm only half in one place and half in another. Every excuse. It's like, how do you be fully present and in everything you're doing? And these two very important things. If you commit to a job, you're, you need to be committed to it. Your children, to me, uh, you have, you know, if you're going to have them, you better be committed to them. Right. <laughs> and I, but, but finding out your way of doing that means that you have to find your path. And Anna, that's the character who struggles with it, struggles to find her path and then ultimately does. But right. She, has to, she definitely goes through, uh, um, she goes through some pain to get there. Now, one of your characters declares this about men. Men are a luxury and one I can live without. <laughs> So what were you trying to say there? <laughs> where did that come from? Oh, oh, that's good. Um, where did that come from? What that character, Maggie, 
that the the movie Maggie's Plan was based on uh -huh. that that storyline, and Maggie uh, was changed in the movie uh, a little bit. It was more of a romantic comedy in the movie. In in the book, she really realizes that if I, in her mind, having a man around is just having another person I have to take care of, and I want children, but I don't want to have to take care of a man too and therefore it's a luxury like you know what I, I i don't need it there's a great book by susan mousehart that was published oh god i published it probably 10 or 15 years ago called wife work mm -hmm. and this woman has the greatest line and she says i had more time on my hands as the single mother of three children under five once I left my husband than when he was around. <laughs> and I have never, that just stuck in my craw. And it's a nonfiction book about the division of labor. Right. And I think in some families, and I think, you know, listen, I'm lucky. I have a husband with whom I do share things. You know, you know, we really do share everything. Mm -hmm. And he's amazing. But I don't think a lot of women are that fortunate. I mean, I feel like right. I've been very fortunate along the way. But I also know women like, you know, men who won't, you know, make dinner, do the laundry, you know, you know, do any of the domestic chores. And then you wind up doing the full-time job, you know, as a professional. And you're doing a lot of that. You're carrying the domestic load. This was the case with Susan Mousehart. And she was saying that the division of labor is still so uneven that it's impossible for women. And it's like, you know what, I'll just pay somebody to do the other bit instead right. of trying to rely on a husband who's not going to show up for it. That So I had that, in, I had her book and her line in my head as I was writing the character of Maggie. Not that it was based on her, but that, that problem with having, you know, people, you know, people will often say, you know, I have, you know, that, that, that you have uh, th that somebody's partner and it could be, right. doesn't necessarily have to be a man, but somebody's partner is somebody else to take care of. And Maggie's gone. I'm done. I just want, you know, Maggie really wants another kid and she just wants to take care doesn't, of her kids and it's cleaner. It's easier for her right. to, to not have to think about somebody else's needs. I don't know if that's right. I mean, you know, my thing was to create these characters and say, let the world, you know, you don't have to like yeah. them or agree with them, but let's just let them own their, frustrations and own their predilections and own their their very unique way of sort of approaching life yeah. as opposed to fitting convention i think is like the mother of all prejudices right in a, right. In a way it's, right it's, it it really if you have to slot so i was trying to buck convention and 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 basically say let these women have their own agency and they're decent women and they're honest and they're lovely but they do things that everybody right. goes huh i mean isabel you know, the, the character of Isabel yeah. definitely does something that people uh, have a lot of pro yeah. have a big problem with. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, talking about sort of the role of men, it, it actually made me think about how fortunate I am to be in a situation where I do have a husband who is a partner in life and parenthood. Yes. And there are so many people who aren't in that position. Um, exactly. And that, you know, and also because our societal structures aren't set up to help uh in the same way so i sort of feel like we are you know it seems we still have a long way to go in the workplace and in society before women can have that full agency that these women are in some way lucky to have um to maybe i'm totally. being too pessimistic but. well no i don't think you are and i think that i think the more you just have to t you know talking about it helps i hope i feel like we've been backsliding in yes. the recent uh political atmosphere i think the backslide is a reaction to 
getting further along. And I think that's what happens. I think it's, you know, three steps forward, two steps back. I think that's, you know, I do think that that's what happens. I think it's inevitable that we will gain, well, you know, the Handmaid's Tale has become very popular again for a reason, right? right. I mean, that it, that is the fear and that's what we're, you know, what we're looking at. But besides that, I think that women, I think women and the men who understand the the conflict, your husband, my husband, you know, my sons, you know, really get it, you know, it will start to shift, but yeah. it's, a, it's a shift, you know, a shift away from how many thousands of years of, frankly, just being oppressed and judged by each other, by everyone around us. I mean, you know, my own mother would even have a problem with the way I lived constantly. Yeah. You know, I mean, so you get it even familially, you get it from the culture, you get it from your workplace and depends on where you are. Now I'm currently in a workplace that is is awesomely supportive, but I have been at other jobs where having a child was terrifying because you really thought you would be valued less. And uh, you know, one of my colleagues just had a baby, and she was really nervous about it. And I said, you know, like that breaks my heart that a woman today has a child and believes that she's going right. to be valued less in the workplace. And I said, no, 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 you you should be valued more because you're going to like you're going to your priorities are going to be on point man. exactly and very focused very, very focused, focused. Yes. very yes. focused now it's you, the opposite of distraction yeah now right. isabel uh one of the characters sort of has a boss who kind of feels that motherhood is a is a a, a negative um yes but she she is pregnant and she is dealing with an extremely active libido during her pregnancy <laughs> yes she is. and the company that the other three women are part of called red hot mama create sexy lingerie for pregnant women and they face a cultural backlash and demonstrations and opposition. And I'm wondering, why do you think that as a society, we have a problem with equating pregnancy with sexiness and how did you decide to come up with talking about this in the book? <laughs> um, because I, again, I think that, the language around motherhood is, I mean, this is something I've just written about in a nonfiction um, essay, you know, that motherhood is often the language around it is that of selflessness and sacrifice and almost martyrdom. And by that, you give up agency, right? It's mm -hmm. like, I'm going to give myself over to this thing. And my, what I wanted to say is that motherhood, I want to, I want to twig that. And I want to start thinking of motherhood as something that is a privilege, talk about privilege, and um, and selfish. You know, you ha you put your genes in the world, you put this child in the world, someone you will do anything to help put in the world. Now, again, this is coming from a very privileged place, and I and I I, I understand that because I can I can talk about a, you know segments of society where this is not true at all. Mm -hmm. But you know, I write from where I know and where I live, and that I believe that this this language of sort of giving it's like you know you become pregnant, you walk around with that belly, people feel like they have the right to touch you. They have the right to tell you what to eat, how to act. I mean, it's really crazy. Like you become public property. Right. And I wanted to say, you know, and it was enacted by this idea of Red Hot Mama, lingerie for, you know, pregnant. Why shouldn't, you know, that, that was born out of being pregnant and not being able to find bras and panties that fit because they're right. just idiots. And I'm going, this is ridiculous. Like there's somebody should, you know, we should be able to look lovely while we are, you know, in this very ripe and beautiful, sensual, you know, physical stage of being pregnant. Um, 
and to celebrate it. But I also realized that what happens is that people also think it's sacrosanct and that you have to be martyred to your motherhood. And I was taking Isabel to enact that fully by saying, I'm going to act on my libido in a way that is very selfish right. and risky. And, you know, a lot of people, you can judge her, but just to have her personify the opposite thing than what we expect. Mm -hmm. We sanctify um, motherhood in a way that doesn't allow the mother to have agency. It's like, it's almost like by you either can, you can, it's like the Virgin Mary, right? You, you, you sanctify her in order to take away, and then you don't know anything about her, and she, you know, how powerful is she? I mean, then you can go into that whole. I mean, right. That's, a, well, that's another thing I go into in the book. <laughs> one thing I will say for Red Hot Mama, that idea of the sexy lingerie written well before Beyonce um, came on yes. the scene to show us how beautiful an expecting yes. mother is. Oh, and there, I mean, just all of them. That, that's the other thing is to not look at them as, you know, they're also the stories of men who won't have sex with their wives when they're pregnant because they either don't like the way they look or because they 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 think it's dangerous or you know there's a lot of tension around it yeah and i just want to say like is there anything more beautiful than a woman i mean i i think you know women who are pregnant are just beautiful and 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 i think men are they're made to feel and then you talk to women they often feel you know unattractive and bloated and fat and out of shape and all this stuff and you're going no 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 don't you understand like that's just that somehow the culture has seeped in and told you things that just aren't true. And I want to celebrate it and I want to celebrate the sensuality right. of it. And you know, you know, some people want to have sex when they're pregnant, some people don't. And right. I, 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 it's a, it's definitely a conversation when you bring it up, everybody has an opinion about oh, that's it. That's for sure. But score, <laughs> score one for red hot mama. That's for sure. So <laughs> my yes. last question is really about um, the fact that you wrote this book. Uh, you've been a publisher and editor for a long time. But yeah. this is you on the other side. Um, mm -hmm. What was that like? And what will you tell all the aspiring uh, writers out there? Um, patience is a virtue. I think you 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 know you write not to, you write not to publish. You write because you must because you have a story to tell, um, and that is something that I've always done. I've been writing as long, frankly, longer than I've been a publisher. I just didn't start publishing until recently, for a lot of reasons. But um, I being on the other side of it has been has been humbling. Um, it's really wonderful to see what my authors, you know, go through on this side. Um, but it's also um, I, I just wrote about this actually in Lit Hub, where I just said that I saw editing as an act of generosity and, and love, because for someone to look at your work and actually spend that much time caring about it and helping you hone it. I've done this all my life. I've never looked at it as anything. It's like, it's my job and then I take it seriously and this is what I do. And it wasn't until someone was doing it for me that I was able to accept it mm -hmm. as a gift. And so to me, the exchange, what a friend of mine calls mutual reflection, the exchange between an author and an editor was one of the most beautiful experiences that I've actually had in this world. So it became new after 30 years the experience became new for me and I feel very, very fortunate and humbled by it. Um, and I love it. I, I love it. But on the other side of it, I also, my expectations are, I, I feel like you put a book in the world and then you say it belongs to the world now. I hope it's discovered. I hope people like it. I hope people find things in it. If they don't like it, that's their prerogative too. But to sort of also separate a little bit from it and say that the book is now belongs to the world and it is not, you know, it's of you, but it is not only you. Mm -hmm. And there's that act that I understand more. And I think I can help authors 
when they go through the anxiety of a, a book about to come out because it, it there's a there's, it usually causes a very high state of anxiety is that to to sort of step away from it a little bit it's like you give it to the world yeah. and then you you step and, back. and now you know what they're going through. Um, uh, at, well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I, you know, I know for, I know it from the other side. And it's 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 been it like it's been it sort of it completes the circle for me in some way um, in the thing that I do daily. I mean, you went through it, so you I think you must know that too, right? When yeah. You put your book in the world. Yeah, it's a very uh, precious thing. Uh, publisher, editor, and now author Karen Rinaldi. Her debut book is called The End of Men. You can read about this and lots of other great books by women at 52 weeks, 52 books, 52 women.com. Karen, thanks for joining me. Oh, Madalika, thank you so much for taking the time.